0: Hello, it's good to see you all. Uh, Turn back to Genesis chapter 2, it's very easy to find. Uh, For the moment we're on the same page as the same chapter number, that'll get out of sync soon, but for the moment, turn to page 2 of your Bibles, that's what we're looking at. Uh, Remember we've got our Q&A after the sermon today, so if you've got questions out of our series in Genesis so far, feel free to raise those then, I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, But now we're going to pray before we look at God's Word. Heavenly Father, we pray as we turn to this foundational part of the Scriptures that you will give us ears to hear and hearts that are soft to respond and in particular we pray that you will help us to understand ourselves better, understand your world better and understand you better as a result of this vital chapter of Scripture. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've uh, gotten older, I've started caring more about uh, my history, my heritage and uh, where I come from and all that sort of thing. I think that's why those websites like ancestry.com do really well. Uh, There's a certain age people get to where they start wondering about those sort of things and caring about those sort of things, become interested in their family history. So it's uh, Interesting, when we went to England a few years back for my long service leave, yes, we went to the castles and we went to the palaces and the the museums and the churches and all that sort of thing, Uh, but I also arranged for us to go and stay in Bradford, which is a city in uh, northern England. They have to understand this, the Lonely Planet Guidebook to England says, and this is a quote, Bradford exists to make every other place you visit seem nicer. That's... uh, (laughs) It's a lovely place. In 2021, it was voted the fourth worst place to live in England. So there you go. Uh, Not many people, especially tourists, make a point of travelling to Bradford in the north of England. But I wanted to go there because it's where my mother came from. It's where she, when she was a young girl, came from Bradford out to Australia. It's where our family sort of comes from. And so I forced my family, including all three of the kids, to wander around the city of Bradford uh, and visit, you know, the church where my mum was baptised and the the house where she was born and where their grandmother lived, uh, where my my grandmother, their great-grandmother lived uh, and that sort of thing. It was a funny point at one point where we drove into the part of town, the little place where my mother was born, And uh, as we got there, and as we looked out, and I went to park the car and get out of the car, and Victoria said, we are not getting out of the car here, just wind down the window, take a photo, you can tell your mum you've been there and let's go, you know, (laughs) it wasn't a salubrious part of town. But um, but why did I want to do that? It's it's because where we come from matters, you know, it, it shapes us in sort of intangible ways which is why Genesis 2 is so important for us to understand, because this is where we all come from. Uh, This is the story of the beginning of humanity. So if you want to understand who you are, if you want to understand what it is to be a human being, if you want to understand what it is to be a man and a woman, you have to understand Genesis 2. That is how important this is. Uh, So let's get into it. Uh, Before we begin, uh, and as we start, I just want to reiterate the point I made back a couple of weeks ago when we started in chapter one. And just like with the seven days of Genesis 1, I'm not that interested in my sermon in, in getting into debates people have uh, about modern science and Genesis 2, in the same way I talked about with Genesis 1. So I would say, go back and listen to my podcast on Genesis 1, uh, if you want to think more on, on that sort of thing. But I will make a couple of quick points the first is this, Jesus and the New Testament treat Adam and Eve as real, and that's good enough for me. Uh, that's my first point. Uh, in fact, there's actually a really, really helpful truth there. As a Christian, once you come to know that Jesus is the Son of God, and once you come to believe that he rose from the dead, then his word goes. So once, once you've come to believe Jesus is the Son of God who has risen from the dead, uh, that's the key question. Is Jesus who he says he is and did he rise from the dead? Because if he is and if he did, then that answers my other questions. See, when people come to me with questions about Old Testament history, I say, worry about that second, focus on Jesus and decide, did Jesus rise from the dead? Which is a question of history, of known history. That's the key thing because if he did, then you take his word on the rest. And I think it's very clear that Jesus and the New Testament are adamant that Adam is a real person, that Adam and Eve are real people. Which leads to my other quick point, and that is, this is history, but it is richly symbolic. I kept making the point that back in Genesis 1, this is not a science textbook. I think sadly, when people try to use it that way, it can sometimes force them to read Genesis 2 in a way that misses the wonderful theological points that were being made. So I want to say this is history, but it's written to make fundamental theological truths about humanity, about God, about the world, about sin, about grace, about everything else. That's why I call it history that is richly symbolic. Now, as I said on Genesis 1, if you want to talk more about that sort of thing, and some of you have taken me up on that, uh, get in touch. If you, I can give you books to read or we can have a conversation. But now, let's go and learn from the story of everyone's beginnings. And so I've called it the story of humanity. Uh, and it begins at chapter 2, verse 4. So look at chapter 2, verse 4. It says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth, concerning their creation at the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. I'm going to point out a couple of things. The first is, look there, that word there, records, it's literally the generations. And this is important. You see, chapter 1 through to chapter 2, verse 3 was the big picture. That, that's the picture of how God created the heavens and the earth. But this is the story of the generations. This is the story of the people God created to fill His creation. So it's chapter one, focused on the big picture, now we're down into humanity. There's another interesting thing to see and it's a change that happens between that first part of chapter one through to chapter two verse three and then it changes at chapter two verse four. See look back over chapter one and what you'll notice is up to now it's talked about God doing all these things. So the Hebrew word is Elohim, it's just a generic word for God. Okay, so you see that, flick back chapter 1, up to chapter 2, verse 3, it just keeps saying, God did this, God said this, God and so on. From verse 4, look closely, it gives God a different name. Do you see how it says, the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, God. That's translating the name Yahweh. I am, the the personal name of God that later on he is going to reveal himself to, 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 uh, to Moses in Exodus by that name. This is really important, see whenever you see that word Lord God in capitals, that's translating Yahweh, the personal name of God that he reveals himself to his people by. Now that's incredibly significant because as we turn to God's creation of humanity, You see, it's not some generic name for God, it's not some generic out there distant deity, God is the personal God who loves and cares for and wants to relate to His people. Please don't miss the significance of that, of how wonderful that is. And so what we have is the personal loving God creating mankind. Look from verse 7, it says, then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground, And breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. I think that's one of the most wonderful verses in the Bible because it is saying, You are not some random accident. We are not some random, cosmic, one in a billion accident. God formed us. Remember back in chapter one, we are made in his image. God made humanity to be the pinnacle of his creation. But he formed us, if you look there, from the dust. We are not immortal like God, we are part of his creation. In fact the name Adam is a play on the Hebrew word for dust. So if you meet an Adam, call him Dusty, that's his his actual name. But the point is, I think, this should teach us some humility, this should put us in our place. See we remember this at funeral services, See, I I have taken funeral services where there are hundreds and hundreds of people there, and I have taken funeral services where it's me. And at each of them, though, I say the same words from the Psalms. I say, we are but dust. And because of our sin, our days are numbered. See, even the richest, most powerful, most loved person in the world comes from the dust and returns to the dust. John Calvin, the great reformer, he said this, when he was commentating on on Genesis chapter 2, he said, the body of Adam is formed of clay and destitute of sense, to the end that no one should exalt beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid, who does not hear, learn, humility. See, it it makes us realise, we are creatures. So in that sense, we're the same as the animals, We're, we're creatures formed by God, but there is one thing different, Go back to the verse again, verse 7, that wonderful part of the verse where it says, God breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. We're meant to feel the intimacy of that, that God imparted his breath, his spirit into Adam. God breathed life into Adam. I I have the image of the surf lifesaver on the beach, you know, doing CPR, except that's very violent and... and and sort of urgent. This is an act of intimacy, an act of grace. God breathed his breath. You see, it's a special act and part of that special place God has given to humanity. We alone have the breath of God, we alone are made in the image of God. See, to understand ourselves as human beings, we have to grasp both sides of that coin. See, we are creatures formed from the dust, so be humble, know your place, but we are special, given life by God. We have to say this actually in light of that over and over again, this is why we value human life. You see, human life is not something that is ours to give or take Uh, and it doesn't matter how unpopular it makes us as Christians, we stand against abortion, we stand against euthanasia, we stand against anything that says human beings have the right to decide the life of another person because we are humble but special, that is humanity. Let's move on, if you look at chapter 2, the overwhelming picture of Genesis 2 is of Adam living in paradise, the, the word Eden means delight and, and the picture is Adam lacks nothing other than one thing we're going to come to later on but what we have is Adam made in the image of God living in perfect harmony with God totally blessed. But the other thing you see in the picture is that God had a job for Adam to do, he had a job for humanity to do and I've called it Adam's basic responsibility. Look with me from verse 15, it says, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. There's something really, really important to see there, even in paradise we are designed to work. See, paradise, we we get this picture that paradise would have been floating around, doing nothing and just sort of swanning around and whatever. No, work comes before the fall. There is work in the Garden of Eden. It, it, It is not good for human beings to be idle. See, God made us to be productive. He wants us to work in his creation. Now, we live after the fall. That's Genesis 3, that's next week's passage, when sin enters the equation and because sin enters the equation, that means our work is often frustrating uh, and our work, it, sometimes it's hard to see how our work has any value uh, and we're right to remember that work shouldn't be the centre of our life and we're right to see that Christ is returning and, and so even as we work, we long even more to do what the New Testament calls the work of the Lord but even so, our work is valuable And working hard is one of the ways we glorify God. The New Testament makes that very clear. Work for the Lord. But here in the garden, what was the nature of Adam's responsibility? You see it there in verse 15? Look at verse 15. What are the two words there? Work it and watch over it. Troy alluded to this last week, but those two words actually give us the right view of how we relate to God's creation, how we relate to the world, how we relate to the environment. God wants us to work it. He wants us to shape it. God wants us to use trees to make wonderful pieces of furniture with. That is a good thing, that is obeying our creation mandate as the theologians it. God wants us to dig mines and discover minerals and use them for for the good of humanity, for the good of other people. There is nothing wrong, I might offend some people here, but there is nothing wrong with killing a feral deer in the national park. It's ours to rule and they're not meant to be there, they were designed for the northern hemisphere in God's world, You, you know. And in fact, see, that's actually part of our, the other side of the coin, watching over it. And and that's the point, God also wants us to watch over his creation. We rule under God, taking responsibility for God's world. See, this is why I always say a Christian view on the environment, a biblically informed Christian view, will probably not keep anyone in our modern world happy. It's a good place to be. If everyone doesn't like you, you're probably on the money on this one. So so, so sort of idea. That's how I live my life. No, no. Uh, You see, you won't keep either side of of modern society happy because if you're all the way with the mining companies, or if you're all the way with the greenies, you're probably not letting God's word shape your worldview. Because on the one hand, we, we as Christians would want to challenge the greed. Of, of, uh, you know, of the big company that strips everything dry uh, uh, that to make more and more things that no one actually needs but just thinks they want. You know, we would challenge that. But then we'll say to the environment, environmentalist, hey, it's not always wrong to build that dam. Sometimes we need to irrigate the world, to grow crops, to feed people and hey, people are more important than animals, don't forget that. See, when we hold that tension, that work the world but watch over it too, that's when we get it right. But Adam actually had a greater responsibility even than that and it's in verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now we'll come more to the two trees next week in chapter three, but do you see here how God gives Adam incredible freedom? And that's actually still true for us, eat from any tree, God says, enjoy my creation. I've made it for you to enjoy. God's creation is good. It's to be enjoyed with thanksgiving to God. That's still the case, but God put one limit on it. Now, what's the point of God saying, but don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? What is the issue with the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's saying, don't seek wisdom without listening to God. See, at its heart, the knowledge, it's not that God's against knowledge, God loves knowledge, but it's saying, you don't get to decide right and wrong for yourself. In fact, that is the essence of human sin. The essence of human sin is saying, I'll decide right and wrong. God's saying, no, no, that is my business. My business is to tell you right and wrong. Your job is to listen to me. See, God gives us this wonderful creation to enjoy, but the one limit is... God remains the king, not us. But we'll get to that next week when we deal with what happens when they do eat from that tree. But the point here is that our greatest responsibility is to listen to God. Our greatest responsibility is submit to God. It is His world and we rule it under Him. Which brings us to the last part of the passage, and I've called it Man and Woman, God's Perfect Complements" with an E not an I, verses 18 to 25. Because at this point Adam is still alone. And so God says, let's do something about that. Look from verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper as his complement. Now, do some hard work here. Look at it. What what strikes you in that verse? In the light of what we've read for the last two weeks and in your gospel teams in chapter one through to chapter two, verse three, look again at verse 18. What is the striking thing in verse 18? Verse 18 it is the first time God says that's not good. Remember how that's, we've had that refrain right through, God made it and it was good, God made it and it was good. This is the first time God has said something is not good, up until now, all good, now something not good. Now understand this because people get this wrong and they think this is some sort of funny love story. It is not that Adam was wandering around the garden, forlorn and lonely, like a like a teenage boy who's had his heart broken. You know, it's not like Adam is is Romeo looking for his Juliet. This is not about how every man needs a good woman. Okay, it's not Adam who has a problem. Adam's happy as anything. It's God who says it's not good. It's God who says something is missing, because for humanity. To be able to do what God wants, not least fill the earth and subdue it, we need man and woman together. And so God forms animals and he brings them to Adam, to the man, it's important that Adam names them all because that's a way of saying we are over the creation, we're not equal with the animals, no, Adam names them, that's a way of expressing his rulership over them, we alone are in the image of God. But he gets to the end of them all at verse 20 and look what he says, he says, but for the man, no helper was found as his complement. See, it's repeating those same words from verse 18 and so God takes a part of the man and he makes a woman and she is that helper, she is that complement to the man, she is what is needed to make humanity complete. Humanity was incomplete if it was just a man, And so you have Adam's wonderful response in verse 23, look there, which is the high point of the chapter. This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. Now again, it's a play on words in the original language in the Hebrew, which sort of carries into English the way man and woman are related words. The the word for woman comes from the word for man. And It's like Adam is saying, at last someone who is like me but different to me, at last someone who is like me, the same as me but different to me. Now picking up on that, I want to make a few points about men and women at this point. Do you see how those two words just get repeated again and again about Eve? Helper and complement? Do you see how they're just over and over again? Now sometimes people say that word helper and they think it means subordinate or less equal, in some way, which is really quite silly, in Exodus, Moses, God, is called Moses's helper and no one thinks, oh, God's, God's under Moses, he's, he's less equal than, no, no, God is above Moses, I am Avril or, or Troy's boss but sometimes I help them, do their misery. it's not making a, a statement about equality and in any event, we saw last week in chapter one, men and women alike are made in the image of God equally loved and valued by God. The key word is compliment. Men and women are compliments to each other. Our modern world hates this, but men and women are different. Your sex is not a social construct. Your sex is not because your, your mother dressed you in pink when you were six months old. It is a biologically grounded reality. It is a physical reality, our world has gone insane on this issue, there is is no other word for it. Our world has gone literally insane on this issue, thinking that because a a person doesn't feel like a man or doesn't feel like a woman, they should undertake drastic physical changes to to, to change themselves, thinking that somehow we can pick and choose whether we're a man or a woman or something else. Now, Now, how we approach talking to people about that has to be with grace and has to be with with love, because these are real people struggling with these issues, sadly being led astray by our culture. If I can say this, Year 7 Science and Genesis 2 are totally consistent. Male and female is how God created us, equal but different. Now if you are concerned or or confused by the modern transgender movement and uh, how to respond to it and all that, can I encourage you to get this book and read it? I read it a couple of weeks ago, it's called The Gender Revolution, A Biblical, Biological and Compassionate Response and it's by uh, Patricia Wirakoon who is a uh, scientist here in Sydney who works in gender and sexuality issues uh, as well as two Bible scholars as well. Uh, It's a really helpful book on the science and and just sort of refuting the way our world has gone and the way our laws are going but also how to respond to it in a godly way rather than just jumping up and down uh, and how to respond to people in a godly way if they're struggling with it and I want to say to you if you uh, are a parent or a grandparent and you have a child going through our education system at the moment or a grandchild read this book because you need to know how to talk to your children about these things because it's, it's where our world is taking us in incredibly unhelpful directions. So I just, I can't recommend that highly enough. But back to Genesis 2, this reality that men and women are equal but different, then flows through the rest of the Bible. You cannot understand that the Bible's teaching on men and women without Genesis 2, it, it's the foundation of it. So it's why men and women, have different roles in the church, in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians and other parts of the New Testament. It's why men and women have different roles in the family, as we read about in Ephesians 5 and other places. It's why a husband is different to a wife. It's why, it's why a father is different to a mother. You see, some of don't like what the Bible says about these things and they say that's just cultural, you know, the the times have changed but no, the Bible says those differences are grounded in creation. They're actually just part of how God designed us. Men and women are equal but different and that's why in some settings we have different roles and different responsibilities, we complement one another. Now again, some people argue those differences are only after sin, You know, it's only after sin entered the world that there is a difference between men and women. No, it's here before sin, in Genesis chapter 2. Which is just a reminder that this is not a teaching, when the Bible teaches about men and women, it's not a a teaching to accept reluctantly uh, or, or to resent. It's grounded in God's creation, which is very good. See, this is a beautiful teaching, it's part of what God says is wonderful. We miss out when we get this wrong. We miss out when we forget that men and women are equal on the one hand, or that men and women are different on the other hand. We are the ones who miss out when we mess that up. I said before, this is about much more than marriage. Uh, The point here is less that Adam needed a marriage partner and more that humanity needs male and female to be complete, I think sadly, in our modern world, we too often get told that marriage will complete us in some way, as if a person who is not married is, is, is not quite complete or, or, or something like that. You know, the, that movie, Jerry Maguire, where he says, you complete me, you know, and that's, that's the moment, oh, look at that, he's found his soulmate. It, Jesus was not married and he was the perfect human being. I think he was pretty complete. He didn't need to be married to be complete. Paul was not married and he seemed to lead a pretty productive life. You see, Paul even taught sometimes it is better for a Christian to remain single because a person could do more for Jesus that way. That's in 1 Corinthians 7. So my point is, Genesis 2 is about much more than marriage. It's actually about how we need men and women together to complement one another in our world, in our church. It, it, it covers every aspect of life we need male and female to be completely human. But having said that, it does provide us with the Bible's foundation of marriage. And that's how the chapter ends at verse 24, my final point, look there. It says, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Now, sorry to embarrass anyone whose children are present here today, but where it says that the man and woman... Remember, I've got to preach it to three children tonight. But anyway, where it says man and woman became one flesh, it is talking about sex. But it is talking about much more than that. It is talking about sex. God designed us male and female and He designed our bodies to fit together. I'm sorry to be so graphic. Homosexual practice is not something God's Word can ever countenance as a good thing. So, it's not, not what your body's designed for. Because sex is to bond a man and a woman together for life. That's why it's reserved for marriage. When people have sex who are not bonded together by the commitment of marriage, it damages them and actually damages our society. It damages our whole society. But that's for a whole other sermon for another day. The key picture here, though, of marriage is the words there, look at the verse again, is the words leave and bond. If you've got an older translation, it will be leave and cleave, uh, which I prefer just because of the rhyme. Uh, now, this is vital to understand marriage. When a couple get married, they leave their old family and cleave to this new person. See, the marriage relationship becomes their primary responsibility, it becomes their primary loyalty. And in fact, marriages can get into trouble. When, when one of, the husband or wife, is still loyal to their parents over their spouse. See, that's why as Christians, our first responsibility is no longer to our blood family, if you like, and our birth, it's to this person who we have made promises to, to love and to cherish and those sort of things. And more than that, this marriage unit of the man and a woman is the basic unit of society. We need to protect it. We need to honour it, this is why as Christians we care about what the government does with marriage because the marriage unit is the fundamental building block that God has built societies upon. Now remember this is all before sin entered the world, that's next week chapter three, here we get to see what marriage was meant to be like in verse 25. Uh, We actually had this passage read at our wedding, uh, Genesis chapter 2, in fact The two readings today were our two readings from our wedding. I didn't even think of that until just then. So there you go. Uh, But we had it read, but we made the mistake of uh, asking one of my friends to read Genesis chapter 2, rather than one of Victoria's friends to read Genesis chapter 2. And so he got right to the end. And as he read verse 25, he slowed right down. And he said, both the man and his wife were naked. (laughs) And he gave a big wink like this, to the congregation and I went bright red, we really should have asked her friend to read it but anyway, but I want to tell you, this is actually about more than physical nakedness, it's actually talking about an openness, it's talking about an honesty, it's talking about a trust, where a couple can share everything and feel no shame. Uh, And yes, now there is the impact of sin, even in marriages and sadly, not all marriages last, that, that is just a, a reality and not all marriages perfect. well in fact no marriage perfectly reflects this, but marriages struggle to reflect this. But this is still what a healthy marriage should work towards, honesty and transparency and love that feels no shame. But as important as our marriages are, there's a reason we had that New Testament reading from Ephesians 5 before. Uh, Because all human marriages actually point forward to an even greater marriage. That's the point of Ephesians chapter 5. We we read it at weddings and so forth. We should read it every day. We should read it everywhere. Because it's actually saying when you look at marriage back in Genesis chapter 2, it's pointing you forward to an even more wonderful marriage. The marriage of Christ and his church. See, amazingly, whether you are married in this life, whether you are single, even if our marriages here sadly don't, work out as they should, we are a part of the marriage that really matters. Jesus is our husband par excellence because he is the husband who has laid down his life for his bride and his bride is us, the people of God and there is no shame in our relationship with Jesus, not because we've never done anything shameful, we have, but because he has washed us clean by his death on the cross. So that he might present us, Ephesians 5 says, as a perfect bride, pure and blameless. That is the marriage that we want every person to be a part of. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we learn about ourselves, about your world, and about you in Genesis chapter 2. And we pray that we would not follow the lies of our world, but instead we would find who we are from this chapter, from your word. But Father, we also thank you for the way it points us forward to that most important marriage, the marriage of Christ and his church. And we thank you that Jesus has washed us clean so that we can be presented perfect in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.